Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. life would be if you couldn't say what you wanted now Higashida makes a map of his mind it's kind of poetry how do I see the world for me the details jump straight out. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 316. Releasing January 8 across the US in virtual theatres through Kino Marquee is the reason I jump, a documentary that explores the experiences of non-speaking autistic people around the world. Told with an intimacy and artistry that is staggering in its presentation and incredibly important in its message, The Reason I Jump is a unique film experience that everyone should watch. And I'm glad to say joining me on the podcast is the director of The Reason I Jump, Jerry Rothwell. Jerry, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. So essentially what the documentary is, is an adaptation of a book that came out, I believe it was uh, 2007, and the author of the book, was Naoki Higoshida. At the time he was 13 years old, he himself is autistic and he's also non-verbal in his communication. And when the book came out, I think it was um, re-released in the English translation back in 2013. And when that happened, it was just a, a huge kind of bestseller. Um, is that when you first heard about the book? Yeah, I think actually I, I came across the book via the producers of the film, Jeremy and Stevie, who are actually in the film as well. They have a, a non-speaking autistic boy, Joss, uh, and I think they came across the book and it had, you know, been really revelatory to them, I think, in terms of um, their relationship and communication with Joss. Um, so that sort of took, took you know, when, when we started talking about the film, along with my producer, Al Morrow, um, we, you know, my first step really was to go and meet with Naoki. Mm. Um, and uh, so I went to Japan, talked with him about the project. He was, you know, very fascinated and interested by it and keen for it to happen, but didn't want to be filmed in any way. So that sort of sent the, the film on down a, down a different path, maybe from the conventional one, which would have been perhaps a, a film about a young boy finding his voice and becoming a writer. You just mentioned then there was a different, there could have been different approaches to tell this story. Uh, the approach that the film has is that um, Naoki is, is sort of a guide in a sort of way. He, um, his words are narrated by a different, a different person in the film and you expand the story around the world. You go to um, India, um, you go to the US, um, you're in England, you're in Sierra Leone as well. I was really curious, how did you find all of these, pe- these people? How do you know which people that you wanted to be involved uh, in your story? Yeah, so I, the, I mean, the, as you say, I, I think David Mitchell, the translator of the book, said it's kind of, you know, the book was like an envoy from another world to him. And so, so as soon as we 
knew that Nauki wouldn't be part of it. We're, we were kind of left with this text, if you like, that was by a 10 to 12 year old. I think he started writing it when he was 10, actually, you know, written on a letterboard by pointing to letters kind mm. of in a very painstaking way. Um, and I guess I didn't want, you know, I knew, I knew then, okay, the book was going to be about other non-speaking people around the world and to use the book, sorry, the film was going to be about other, other non-speaking people around the world to use the book as a sort of way of, of, of pushing an audience to understand their experience in a different way. But I guess the dangers of that are that you start to use those other characters as, a, as illustrations of the book. So what I wanted to do was to find people who we could spend time with and kind of immerse yourself in, in their world. And uh, I think the first thing we came across was, was Amrit's artwork. Uh, Amrit is this non-speaking autistic, I think 23-year-old, 22-year-old artist in, in Delhi. Um, and she you know, began drawing really as a way of communicating with her mother. And that drawing over the last sort of 10, 15 years has turned into this amazing kind of art practice where she she paints these beautiful, very detailed paintings that have a kind of, um, I, I don't know, I think they they sort of, uh, they have a particular way of looking at the world. Nauki in the book says that um, he perceives detail before he perceives the big picture. And it felt to me that there was something of that in, in Amrit's painting and it was the perfect way to take an audience into a different way of seeing which is what we kind of needed to do at the beginning of the film and then sort of I, I, I suppose we were then trying to find people who would complement those different uh, you know Amrit and then we had we had Joss who was the producer's son who was a young adolescent boy at that time um, I, I knew I wanted someone that would take it into a more political sphere and, and Ben and Emma in the states are, mm. are kind of actively involved in advocacy groups um, and then I'd been shooting in Sierra Leone and, and I was interested in how autism played out in, a, in an African context. Um, so that was really how those, those four kind of sets of characters came together. It's interesting that Naoki's story has essentially been translated twice. You mentioned before David Mitchell, who, of course, <laughs> is, is the writer of, um, of uh, Cloud Atlas. So he and his wife uh, did the English version and then you have uh, another translation, which is what you have, and you translate it into the language of cinema. And I imagine the goal was to provide, I mean, a version of the sensory experience that autistic people can have. And, and look, you know, you or I or anyone, we can't say for sure that what is on the screen that we're watching when we're watching your film is the accurate presentation of what is going on. But I'd imagine, though, that the aim, what you wanted to convey was try to get as, as close to that as you could, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't think a film can kind of accurately, accurately reproduce, replicate an internal experience. Um, but I think what you can do is get an audience to kind of think differently about reality, I suppose, or about their their everyday experience of reality. Um, you know, in a way, the book's actually been translated. Uh, sorry, the, you know, the, these words have kind of been gone through three processes of translation because Nauki himself is turning this experience of his of, mm. of a, a deep kind of sensory um sometimes overwhelm sometimes intensity uh, together with a kind of you know maybe a different perception of time um and certainly a different perception of language into kind of neurotypical kind of words <laughs> that's the first the first stage of it and david then has done david and, and Kay who translated it i actually went back to the original japanese and their translation is incredibly faithful to Naki's source words um, and I suppose what we wanted to do, especially as, as Naki wasn't going to be in the film, was really like, like it allowed us in a way to depart from uh, the, the book as, as Naki's expression and kind of 
try and create a film equivalent of the book. Um, the book takes you into a different sensory world. I think you know that's the biggest impression I was left with was this the, these these descriptions of sounds, of images, of memories, of time, of language that are you know fundamentally different from the neurotypical. And I think we wanted to see how how cinema could could um, take an audience on that same journey and I think in making it I sort of felt actually cinema itself is a you know is a specific way of perceiving the world with a kind of intensity that's beyond the everyday you know it kind of gives itself to non-neurotypical versions of reality because it you know you're framing something you're focusing on it you're highlighting some sounds and not other sounds you're um, you know shaping the way of a viewer sees the world without letting them see kind of beyond the edges of the frame. When you're trying to present different sensory experiences and sounds in your movie, you essentially are creating this sound world. And I think someone who's really kind of unsung in in this um in your movie is Nick Ryan, who's your sound designer. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to talk a bit about what was your experience like in trying to put all of that together when you're dealing with something like, I don't know, there's, there's scenes involving rain and all sorts of other sounds as well. And they're mm. really kind of turned up to 11 and at times it can be overwhelming. And that's the whole point of, of the experience as well. You're supposed to feel that kind of overwhelmness sometimes and what, what just um, the subjects of the fil film might be going through as well. What was it like putting all those sounds together and now uh, you working with Nick and trying to get that right for your movie? Yeah, Nick is a British sound artist whose work, a lot of whose work kind of touches on the kind of neuroscience of sound and of listening. Um, he himself is synesthetic and synesthesia, which is the kind of fusion of, of image and sound, um, or the fertilization between the two, um, is something that's very common in, in non-speaking uh, autistic people, more common in, in non-speaking autistic people. So I think he had a kind of affinity to the kinds of descriptions Nauki makes about sounds and pictures and the connections between the two. Uh, what we did was, we, you know, Nick's, Nick very early on said, "Oh, well, we'll do this in three in three sixty in 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 three hundred and sixty degree sound mix, which allows you to sort of place the sound, I think, in one hundred twenty eight different positions in a cinema, um, and that allows you, I suppose, to create to, to link sound with with the physical space that that an audience is in. Sadly, during COVID, it's slightly more difficult to do, but." Um, he we so we recorded 360 sound in every kind of location uh so ran these 16 tracks of audio and uh um nick then kind of built on those uh, so for example nauki has this incredible description actually it's not in the reason i jump it's in a it's in another book of his um about hearing rain and needing to go through his memories of rain, all the different times he's experienced and mm -hmm. heard rain in order to establish that it's raining. And we happen to shoot a moment when Amrit is, is on her balcony and this high rise in Delhi and, and it, a storm starts. Uh, and Nick kind of took that storm and took the 360 sounds that we'd found there and then started to combine them with other sounds that sounded like rain or rain in different contexts, rain on a pond, uh, rain on a book, um, or but also then to other, other sounds, you know, kind of metallic sounds, the sound of, um, I, can't, I can't remember, the, he took one sound which sounded a bit like rain, but wasn't rain. Um, so that when you're listening, hopefully, to that moment uh, in the film, 
you're sort of slightly shifted from from thinking about it at, or as rain or it sparks other kinds of thoughts and maybe that was a way of trying to reproduce the kinds of experience that Naoki described when it comes to that sound of rain is it true that Nick got like a piece of paper and kind of scrunched that up and kind of used yeah, that kind yeah. of sound is, is that the word yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. yes exactly yes yeah, sorry that was the one yeah exactly crinkling paper is in there uh Nick actually made uh, a couple of microphones for for this project um, as well to record particular kinds of sounds. There's another another kind of big kind of sequence where Joss um, really enjoys listening to these sounds of kind of electricity substations. Those little green boxes that you hear on the that you see on the street corner mm. that kind of have three phase electricity and the phasing of that, that electricity to those that are listening intently. Um, creates a kind of, I think for Joss, an almost a musical, a very calming sound. Uh, and so Nick sort of built these microphones that you could attach to the, the electricity junction boxes to try and then using that as the basis of the, of the sound mix there. As well as talking with people in the film or using, it's a very vague term, talking to people in the film who, who do have autism, you talk to their parents as well. Um, and I was saying to you, uh, off air, I'm the father of an autistic um, boy, eight-year-old boy named Michael, and you know I can't help but be empathetic when I watch what a lot of people go through in your movie. It can be incredibly hard, can be incredibly costly. There are many therapies you have to go through. There's a scene in particular where um, uh, one one of the people in the film, Joss, has like a, a meltdown. I, I know what that meltdown looks like. I'm, I have ex- had experience with that, and I can really feel that through the screen um having spent time with these families um what is your perspective on what you think the future will look like now that it seems to me that we are living in a time right now where the the science into different forms of you know autism etc um is becoming not as clear as we hope it is, but clearer as opposed to other times. Like there are many times where I say to myself, I thank God I didn't have my child 30 years ago because who knows what type of experiences I'll have then. Um, are many of the families, many of the parents looking into the future with more hope, uh, especially after reading Naoki's book as well and getting some of the perspectives from that? Uh, is that a perception that you have uh, when having spent some time with these people? Yeah, I mean, I thought all of the the families are just incredible people. There's something, perhaps something about the kind of the experience of neurodiversity in the family that kind of broadens your <laughs> broadens your mind and maybe gives you a kind of greater resilience and a, a sort of a, a less ego, you know, perhaps. Um, I, I I mean, I think it's interesting that that. Jim Fujiwara, who's a young Japanese-British boy who sort of plays this role. We, you know, we decided that we needed a kind of space for the book in the film. And there's this young Japanese boy who explores a landscape as, uh, through, you know, and it keeps coming back as we as we hear the book. You know, his parents read uh, Naoki's book, I think, just at the time of his diagnosis. And I think it made a huge difference, just that understanding of, uh, you know, what was perhaps going on in their son's head really changed their sense of what his potential was and you know how he might kind of learn and grow up and I think in a way our our kind of society needs to go through that same transition Um, 
I'm really excited by the idea of neurodiversity. I think it's a really powerful idea to to for, to take on board the idea that we all perceive the world in subtly different ways, and we all need different kinds of kind of adaptations to our, our neurologies, if you like, or to our uh, yeah, uh, to, to crediting our ways of seeing the world. So I'm hopeful about that. And I think when you see Ben and Emma in the film, who you know maybe over a period of 10 to 15 years have learned to communicate through spelling um, and what that communication gives them in terms of access to education. You know, Ben and Emma, at the end of the film, we see them going around a, a flat, mm. uh, a, a block of flats in which they're going to share housing. Uh, actually, they're in, in flats opposite each other. They're now in in those flats living independently from their parents. I mean, they have enormous amounts of support in those flats, but they've managed to achieve a kind of independence. And part of that is through their ability to communicate. So I really hope that that, that those communication methods sort of take hold and, and that, you know, I think they could really transform the opportunities for autistic people. The, res the response towards your film has been incredibly positive reviews fantastic you won an award at the Sundance Film Festival last year as well I was curious though uh, have you received any reactions from the subjects of your film Ben and Emma Emrit uh, for me for example um, have there been any type of uh, feedback to you through their parents about what mm -hmm. they saw on screen and uh, if so would you be able to share that with us now yeah I mean feedback from them directly. I, I guess the process of making the film and consent in a film like this is one where you need to be in a kind of constant dialogue with the person, not necessarily through words, through showing them things or through doing doing things that, that explain what um, the process you're in together is. Um, you know, Ben and Emma have taken part in a lot of Q&As, which has been great to, mm. for them to way have that platform. Um, I think they're, I think they're, um, yeah, I think they're happy with the film. I mean, I'm not going to say otherwise, am I? But I, yeah, pretty much a fairly positive kind of response from all of those who are in it. Uh, um, yeah. Well, I can say to everyone right now listening, especially to all my uh, listeners in the States, to definitely watch uh, The Reason I Jump and releases January 8th. You can watch that in a Kino Marquee. That's K-I-N-O-M-A-R-Q-U-E-E.com. Um, and that will take you to all the links for different virtual cinemas. Just put in your zip code in the show, which one is closest to you. Um, Jerry, I just want to say once again, thank you very much for your time today and thank you for this movie. And, um, you know, I was, I was saying before um, offline that um, as a father of an autistic child, I think watching a movie like this, you know, being a parent in, in the situation I'm in and so many others, you read books from academics and all this stuff and sometimes it's really hard to grasp what's going on. And I think this this movie really does open my eyes a bit more to the experiences that my child is going through. And I, for that, I say thank you very much for that. And also thank you for your time today. Great. Well, thank you for those words. I mean, it means a lot, I think, that that, that parents and, and autistic people themselves kind of recognise uh, things in it. You know, that's, that's fantastic from a filmmaker's point of view. <laughs>